What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Jim is a successful biotechnical researcher in Cambridge in his early 40s. He grew up in a suburban area just outside of Boston where his family went to a Bible-believing church pretty much every Sunday. Jim got baptized at the age of 12 after hearing the gospel presentation and believing that Jesus was his Savior. He went forward and spoke to his pastor who prayed with him and led him to write his testimony and to be baptized the following Sunday. Later in, Jim, later in Jim's life, he was active in church, attending pretty much every week. Uh, he ended up getting into his dream college undergrad before getting into a, another dream school for his PhD program. He succeeds at everything he sets his mind on. Now the pressure during his PhD program was intense and his church attendance began to slip just a little bit. There were Sundays that he would spend studying or sleeping if he stayed up too late sleeping the night before. By the time he graduated, he was only making it to church a few times a year and preferred spending most of his Sundays sleeping in. After he got into his career in the biotech, he got, a, he got super into golfing. And you could hear James, uh, James, you could tell Jim felt, he said that he felt God's presence more on the golf course than he did in the church building. Jim still believes in God. He still says that Jesus is a savior. He just says that he can use his time doing other things. He will donate to a charity when his coworkers bug him about it, but he's actually way too busy to volunteer. He's, he works a lot of hours and he needs to spend his weekends just resting and having some me time. Now Joan on the other, on the other hand is a coffee barista in Davis Square. Joan is 25 years old, and she also grew up in the church. She grew up in middle-class Ohio. Every time the door was open, Joan was in the church all the time. She spent all of her time serving and working 
in the church. In fact, she was on more service teams than even she could count, than she could recollect. Joan served on the worship team, on the kids team, on the first impressions team, and in an after-school program for disadvantaged children. One day, about three years ago, a Boston church planter arrived at Joan's uh, church and spoke about the great need for people to serve the Lord in Boston. And she said, that's where I need to be, where I can be most used. And so she packed up her things and moved to Boston. She's now lived here for two years and is starting to feel worn out. She's been involved in even more ministries than before, but it's hard because she feels all alone. And no one seems to be noticing all the things that she's doing for her church. She's starting to wonder why she even does this to start with. She's worked her fingers down to the bone but God doesn't seem to be answering any of her prayers. And that hurt has turned into bitterness, which has turned into resentment toward God himself. She's made sacrifices, but it just doesn't seem to be paying off. Friends, Jim has faith in God, but no works. And Joan has plenty of works, but no faith. Faith without works, our brother James shares, is dead. And works without faith, our brother Paul shares, is also dead. True Christianity always has both faith and works. True Christianity always has both faith and and works. There's a lot to dig into this passage. This passage is one that's been argued over uh, for many generations by theologians, and I look forward to diving into those and doing a terrible job uh, adding my own uh, thoughts to it, but we'll, we'll see how we go here. Verse 14, James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Then he gives us a hypothetical. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says in the church, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says that, if you're a person of faith and you do not meet the needs of those nearest to you, that your faith is dead and useless. We all know this deep in our hearts. We all know this. We all see Christians who claim, at least people who claim to be Christians, and they don't do anything for anybody but themselves. And we sense that there's something hypocritical deep within them. Now, there's a lot to be said about this. First, what I want to do is talk about how James sounds like he's disagreeing with Paul and how do we reconcile that. And then I want to talk about what James actually does teach us about a saving faith. So let's talk about James and Paul for just a moment. James in verse 24, this is a little bit farther down. Chapter 2, verse 24, he says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, friends, if you're really familiar with your Bible, you might say that verse sounds familiar. Because if you open up to 
Romans chapter 3, verse 28, this is what Paul says. For we hold that, no, that, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. These verses are frightening, frighteningly similar. James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. They're essentially saying the opposite of one another. So there you have it, right here in the Bible, there's a contradiction. They're not saying the same thing. I don't know why any of us are here studying this thing. We should all just leave. Church is closed. Let's move on. Unless there is some explanation to what is happening with these two. How do we reconcile these differences? The teaching of James and Paul, my friends, complement one another. They're not disagreeing, but what they're doing is addressing different perspectives of the gospel. And so they're addressing different problems, and their context matters. James and Paul are addressing two different problems, and so what they say sounds contradictory to one another. It would be like me telling someone who's working 80-hour weeks, stop working so much. You need to stop working so much. You're working too much. You're driving yourself into a hole. What are you trying to prove? And then me turning around and finding someone that's not working at all and saying, you need to get a job and work harder. You see, what I just said is contradictory if I was speaking to the same person, but I'm speaking to two different people. And there is an ideal amount to work. So I'm not saying that you should work 100% spend all your time in the, out, in the office. I'm also not saying that you should just take it off and do nothing. But you have to understand the context that happens with each of these. James and Paul, they actually knew each other. We learn in, in Acts chapter 15 that James and Paul, they're speaking at the same conference, the, the Jerusalem council. They speak together. They know one other. They're not rivals. They're teaching the same gospel. They just have different perspectives and different contexts. This is one of the reasons why there is a bit of a danger in having the same person teach you every week all the time. It's one of the reasons why it's not only for me to take a break for someone else to preach here, because I, I do need to take a break from time to time, but it's also good for you when someone else preaches here, because they bring a different perspective and a different view on it. And that's why the Lord has organized churches not to be led by a single person, but to be led by a plurality of elders. And so in a church, what we want to do is raise up elders in a church so that there can be a plurality of voices that teach on the topics in the scriptures. And that's what I hope that we can accomplish. We're a young church plant, but I hope that we've already got elders, but I hope that down the road we can have all of our elders teaching at least once a year so that you can hear from a diverse set of opinions. And I hope that our elders can represent our community more. I hope that we can have a diversity of, of people that are preaching in our, our pulpits with a diverse perspectives and influences. And I hope that we can do that in the coming years. You see, in Romans, Paul is teaching 
on the nature of salvation. He's going super deep on how someone becomes a child of God, how someone is saved by God. His context is is this. He's speaking to people who were Jewish, who understood how to know God by following the works of the law. And so he's trying to teach them that there's been a shift in the way that we need to think about this. You don't come to God anymore by following the law, moral law and ceremonial law. But actually there's no amount of law that you can follow in order to make yourself righteous before God. And that's what Paul is focusing on. He's trying to teach us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Now, what James is doing is a little mischievous. Because what he's doing is he's actually addressing some problems that occur because people have taken Paul's teaching and they've misunderstood it. And they've taken it and it's become a, per, a perverted form of Paul's teaching. And so it, they took Paul's teaching to the point to where they said, well, Paul said it doesn't matter what we do. It's not the works of the law. It's faith alone. But they've taken that to the nth degree and they've abused Paul's teaching. And so James is coming in and he's, he's being a little bit of a dad um, because he's kind of doing this dad joke thing where he's taking Paul's exact words and he's just changing them a little bit to get your attention. It would be like someone announcing on, on social media, uh, uh, when Megan, I could have done this when we, got engaged, when we got married, I could have said, Megan is no longer my girlfriend. And then had everybody, oh, what happened, what happened? And then it's like, well, that's a really bad way to announce that you got married. Okay? That's basically what James is doing. He's, he's using a bit of a pun. He's, he's being a little mischievous. He's trying to take something that people are familiar with and shock them. And so when you hear him say, we're not saved by faith alone, we're, but you also have to have works, you need to understand this in the context of all of the scripture and even in the context of everything that James is teaching. Because he's already taught us in, in James 1.21 that is the implanted word of God that has saved us. He's not contradicting himself. He's just giving us a fuller, complete picture of what it means to follow Christ. James is being provocative. The reason why James and Paul sound like they disagree is because they're, they're different people with different styles addressing, addressing different problems. And actually what you find is each one of them is addressing one of the biggest dangers to Christianity. With Paul, you see Paul addressing religion and you see James addressing ear religion. Religion says, what I do determines my future and my outcomes. I'm dependent upon myself. I have to make my life worth something. Irreligion, on the other hand, says, it doesn't matter what I do. It's all going to work out. And so it's actually kind of interesting because religion is a faithless works. Religion says, I have to work my fingers to the bone so that God will approve of me, so that I know that my life is worth something, so I know I'm not a bum. Irreligion says, I have faith that it's all going to work out. It's a, it's a workless faith. I don't need to do anything. It's all going to be okay. Whatever. Joan, our friend from the beginning, is very religious. Jim, our friend from the beginning, is very irreligious, though they both would consider themselves to be Christians. But here's the funny thing about religion and irreligion, is that actually some of the most religious people in the world 
religious in the way that I'm using it, would consider themselves to be irreligious and never go to church. And some of the most irreligious people in the world would consider themselves to be very religious and be at church every week. Let me give you an example. The average Somervillian feels a huge burden to be involved in social programs, to be involved in, in social issues. They post about things. They scream in the street. They want to be involved. They want to make the world a better place. And, they can, and the average Somervillian can tend to be a little judgy, all right? Myself included at times. Friends, the extreme liberal and the extreme conservatives in our society are the most religious people because they think it's all up to me. I have to do the things that matter. And what you do is all that matters. And politics have become our modern religion. I heard this story on This American Life a few months ago about a man named Michael Foster. And the story shares at the beginning, Ira Glass comes on, and he tells us that Michael Foster was formerly an evangelical Christian. But then he met his wife, and he, he walked away from the church. And he, his family was always very climate conscious. They had kids. They, they composted. They recycled. They did all the things. They ran their AC sparingly. But then he and his wife went to go see a documentary called An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore. And they went all in. They said, we need to go all in on this. Nothing's going to matter if the world doesn't exist and just if, the, if the climate becomes so hostile in just a few decades. And so Michael started organizing rallies and speaking to motivate to get people active with climate change. He got so involved in this that he ended up quitting his job and getting his family involved in it as well. And so it was very cute. His, he'd get his daughters up there and he'd get the first daughter, the younger one, to, to speak and get everybody kind of laughing and saying, oh, that's so cute. And then the second one would give some type of like kind of professional speech that's been prepared to really, you know, stab them in the heart and get people involved in climate change. But then it just continued and continued. Michael became obsessed. He did not know where he could stop because where can you really stop when you see a problem this big? How does he know when he's done enough? And he doesn't. He just feels like he has to continue to work and work. And so he becomes obsessed. Previously, they had lived a semi-normal life. His wife had a corporate job where they made enough money where they were able to go on vacations, fly to Hawaii. But all of a sudden, the flights to Hawaii felt like it would cost too much for the climate. Not financially, but the jet fuel. He could not consciously bring himself to it. The, this family wanted to get a pet, and he said, do you know what type of carbon footprint an animal has? We're not getting a pet. He could not contribute to any of the climate injustices that he saw. And he started to make his family very miserable. His obsession drove him to climate-induced anger sprees where he would yell at his children in his car. And he actually ended up ruining his relationship with his kids and wife. And I, as I listened to the story, I thought, why is this guy do, giving this interview? And the reality is, is his children still aren't speaking to him. His wife has left him. They've gotten divorced. And he just, he wants to have them back, but he cannot leave his new religion. You see, he left evangelicalism, but he did not ever become irreligious. He is still very religious. He has this firm belief that what I do justifies my existence on earth. And friends, you might feel similarly. In fact, if you think about life, 
How do you know that you've ever done enough? When is it ever enough? You might do a few things, but when is it ever enough? The reality is that each and every one of us, we are in a place of spiritual bankruptcy. The debt is intense. And yeah, we deposit a few quarters in there. <laughs> we, we try to pay off that debt. We do a few good deeds. And sometimes we can pretend like we're not in debt. Oh, I've done some good stuff. I'm not in debt. I'm good. But the reality is, it's, we have a debt that could never be worked off. How do you know when you've done enough? You never will. Anyone can tell you this. How do you know you've done enough? Anyone who's given their life to service, they'll tell you, it never feels like enough because there's always more needs. And that's what religion says. It's a faithless works. On the other side of the spectrum, we, we see some people who are most committed to a religion can functionally become the most irreligious because we've seen people that claim to be Christians yet live their lives no differently than anyone around them. Their lives look no different than the world. They have faith that everything's going to be okay. And religion is this workless faith. When we look at what Paul teaches us, what, what, what James teaches us, I think that actually one of Luther's contemporaries, Philip uh, Melanchthon, Melanchthon, best articulated James's point when he said, we're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. And that is how these two are reconciled. James and Paul, they agree. Saving faith is always accompanied by works. Paul even says, even though he says it's by grace that we've been saved, not by works so that anyone can boast, like four verses later, he says, for we are God's workmanship created in him for good works. They're not at odds with one another. But James does this wonderful thing, and he answers this wonderful question of what does it mean to have saving faith? What does it mean to have saving faith? Is saving faith a mere belief in the doctrines of the church? Is saving faith a mere belief that God exists? If someone were to ask you, how do you know that you are a Christian? How do you know that you have saving faith? How would you respond? For many people, they would say, well, I feel like I'm a good person. I do the right things. <laughs> I give a 10% of what I have. I pray. And I believe that there is a God. But what does James teach us about saving faith? Verse 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. James says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And believe, and you believe that God is one. Good job. Good for you. He says, You do well. Good for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, this is a scary verse because what he says is mere belief in God is not sufficient for saving faith. Because do you know who else believes in God? The demons. And they might have more reverence for him than you do because they believe in God and they shudder. They have reverence for him. The demons might have better theology than some of us. They know who Jesus is. They acknowledge that he is the son of God. Yet they do not have saving faith. What is saving faith, church? Don't miss this. 
Don't miss this. Because not only is this something that you get at the beginning of your Christian life, but it's something that fuels your Christian life, the saving faith. And James explains it to us. Don't miss this. Saving faith is to personally experience the tender, gentle, kindness, and loving forgiveness of the Father of the universe. Saving faith is to personally experience the tender hand of the God who created everything, and who knows you by name, who knows the number of hairs on your heads, and who cares for you, who loves you. Saving faith is to experience that, to know what he has done for you. To, to have saving faith, first you have to acknowledge that you are in that spiritually bankrupt position. But then what you realize is that you don't have to climb yourself out of the hole. You don't have to prove your existence. But Christ has not only paid your debt down, he's given you immeasurable riches beyond your wildest dreams. An inheritance. He has adopted you into the family of God. And now everything that God owns belongs to us as his children. We're covered in Christ's righteousness. So not only are we not having to scrape ourselves out of this spiritually bankrupt position, not only have we been placed in this neutral ground, but no, we've been given every good gift by God. He is tender and kind with us. And now we get to draw near to his glorious throne. Saving faith is to experience the love of God and to see him as lovely. Earlier this week, there was a day when I was a little frustrated with life and I was letting it show. I was being a little, a little snippier than what I might normally be. Letting a little bit of the frustrations sneak out. And I went and sat in that, you know, special green chair. I don't know if you have a green chair. It might be red in your house or something like that. But I have, I have a green chair that if I can get by myself in that green chair and open the word of the Lord and have a few minutes, I feel like the Lord speaks to me. And, and it's happened not just that morning, but every morning, honestly. I open the words of the Lord. And I start to talk with them. And it's not like God speaks directly to me. But I do start to get a sense of the Lord's loving kindness and gentleness towards me. And how he's not snippy with me like I am others. And how he is gentle toward me more than anything I deserve. How he cares for me, provides for me. How he loves me. And it fills me with joy. He's persistent. He's generous. And he's forgiving. And in that, it filled me with patience. And it filled me with a desire to be patient and gentle and tender with others the way that he has been patient, gentle, and tender with me. To be affectionate toward others in the way that he's affectionate toward me. In a way that I've never experienced on this planet. In a way that my father never showed me. 
in a way that any role model never showed me, in the way that no one has any ever showed me, a deep affection and kindness, not because of what I've done to deserve it, but because of what, because of his love for me, because he has made it possible. Friends, our James is not just telling you this morning to do more. If you read this passage, that faith without works is dead, and you think, well, I just need to do more, I think you're reading it wrong. That's not the point that he's trying to make. The problem is not that you're not doing enough. The problem is that maybe you're not experiencing that love of Christ and allowing it to overflow into your life. You see, that is where our works come from. Our works don't come. That's, that's where Paul and James definitely agree and where we need Paul to help us understand this. But it's out of the overflow of the love of God that we love one another in the same way. Our works are the natural overflow of our saving faith and life-giving relationship with God. Friends, if you are regularly experiencing and interacting with the same God that I am, the one who's tender and kind, the one who is patient and long-suffering, the one who shines his face on us to give us joy, the one who lights our paths so that we know where to walk, the one who is not angry at just the, who doesn't have a, a, a trigger hair, a hair trigger to, to be angry, the one who's long-suffering with us and forgiving, if you're regularly walking with him and talking with him, you will delight to follow his commandments because you will know that they are for your good. And you will delight to share his love with others. And it can't, you can't interact with someone like that too much without it rubbing off. It's like being around a very positive person. Uh, some of us have that positive person in our life that just rubs off on us and then we want to be positive. It's like being around Ted Lasso in that way. But it's like an infinite Ted Lasso and one with less profanity maybe, I don't know. It allows you to love people. If you're a Christian, you might recognize that you were once poor or homeless, but now you've been saved by grace. And so when you experience someone in your life, someone comes in who's actually poor or homeless, you can't just turn that person away, but you have to say, I was once poor and homeless. And the Lord cared for me and I need to care for you in the same way. And when someone wrongs you as a Christian, you don't hold a grudge if you're, in, if you're interacting with a God who you have wronged often and who yet forgives you and forgives you and forgives you. If you're interacting with that God, you can't hold a grudge. You also have to extend forgiveness. James ends this little section, chapter 2. I'll conclude here. He, he ends it with a couple of examples to prove his point. He shares about Abraham and Rahab. <laughs> what a random, uh, odd pairing here, okay? This, these are not the two that you would expect. Abraham, that's expected, okay? Abraham, he's the father of Israel. He's the first person of God. He's the one that God calls out of the land of Ur to start the people of God. He gives him an inheritance. He gives him all kinds of promises. He makes a covenant with Abram. Abraham, it makes a ton of sense. Abraham had great faith when he walked up 
a mountain to sacrifice his own son because God commanded him to take his own son. But yet at the last moment, God provided a ram for him to, to sacrifice instead. And so his son was let off the hook, which reminds us of Christ and the way that Christ is our substitute. And recently I've learned that this hill that, that Abram is walking up is the exact hill that Christ was crucified on, archaeologically. That's where it is. It's amazing, the symmetry that happens in these stories. He had great faith, but he also had great works. But what is James doing talking about Rahab? Abraham dominates the scriptures. He shows up everywhere. Rahab is a woman that shows up in Joshua chapter 2, half of the chapter. She's a prostitute. She is uh, a foreigner. She's someone that's downcast in society. She, she welcomes spies from Israel into her home. She bends the truth to let them get away. And her great faith is recognized here in James chapter 2. And I think that what James is doing by using these two is he's looking for two people who could not be more different that exhibit faith in the scripture. Abraham was a patriarch. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham, the original person of God, called out by God. Rahab, a foreigner, non-Israelite at all, dismissed and demeaned by society. Yet, they both have a faith that saves. You see, you don't have to be a special someone to have this. You don't have to be uh, someone that has all of their life put together to have faith that has works at the same time. The saving grace of Jesus is available to anyone and everyone. James isn't calling you to do something that you're incapable of. That's why he's mentioning Rahab here. All of us are to put our faith into action. All of us are able to love and to demonstrate the character of God to one another. Church, I want us to be a church that is openly and maybe a little overwhelmingly loving and affectionate toward others. Toward each other especially. What does it say about who a church worships when you walk in and the people of God are cold and affectionless? It says something about who they worship. We as a church must be a warm, affectionate, loving body. As you were created, each of, we're also in New England, and so, you know, take that. I, it's not going to look, I grew up in rural Mississippi. It might look a little bit different for me, okay? But we need to be affectionate and loving. And I want us to have that vision. I'm talking gentleness and kindness and loving and sacrificial, uh, sacrificing for one another and patience, long-suffering. We reflect him. And when we reflect that toward others, we live out our faith. So church, let's be reminded of what he has done for us and let's move in accordance and love one another. We celebrate a meal each week to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. We call it communion. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he tore it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took a cup of, of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. My blood, yes, my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we take a communion meal each week, we're being reminded that Christ sacrificed himself for us, an act of ultimate love. And we're experiencing his presence once again that drives us to love him more.
So let's stand up. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal. Father, we come to your table now. And we ask that you'll speak to us and that you will fill our hearts with the love and the kindness and the tenderness that you can give us in Christ. Help us to hear from you, to be changed by you, and motivated by the way that you've loved, forgiven, and cared for us. God, as we prepare our hearts for the sacred meal, help us to examine our lives. And if there's anything that is out a step with your commandments. God, we delight to follow your commandments. And so we pray that we will repent, that we'll follow after you. And God, may we be a family, a community that is known for the way that we love one another. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.